Nobody would have predicted how 2020 has unfolded, and yet so many predictions have been made and proven to be wrong in quick succession, even as we're experiencing the ramifications of climate change, the pandemic, the first recession we've had in over 30 years, and what looks like the beginning of another property boom. And yet, we're going to brave it, and we're going to look ahead to 2030. We've come through a period where centralisation of, you know, a lot of things was the pathway to efficiency, productivity, uh, you know, more people you can pack into a building, you know, the more, you know, or the lower the cost uh, per FTE, all of those kinds of things sort of created this centralist way of thinking. Now, this decade is all going to be about the complete opposite. It's all going to be about decentralisation. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Sentiment is an interesting thing. It swings elections, creates volatility in share markets. It's what drives supply and demand in the property market. Sentiment doesn't have to be based on fact. It's a collective emotion or crowd psychology. So what's a sentiment amongst our business leaders when it comes to the next decade? Today's guest has surveyed 673 Australian professionals, 170 of whom are classified as CEO, chairman or board director. Interestingly, the research commenced just before lockdown and finished in the middle of it. How have our attitudes towards the decade ahead changed as a consequence of the pandemic. We're joined today by Rocky Scoboliti, futurist, thought leader, businessman, and author of a newly released book, Australia 2030, Where the Bloody Hell Are We? Rocky, thank you for joining us. We're really keen to hear your insights today. Pleasure, Veronica, and it's great to be part of the program. Rocky, great to have you on. I mean, uh, most people probably seen your name around the trap, so it's um, our pleasure. I guess when you started to write the book, what were some of your unconscious sort of personal beliefs of what you thought they would say and did that actually align to what they actually told you over what they think is going to happen over the next decade? So it really begins with thinking about the last decade because uh, we closed off what was possibly the most turbulent decade uh, we've ever experienced. Uh, and what I mean by turbulent was it was turbulent politically. Uh, it was, you know, we had what we saw was more changes of leadership through that period by the major mm. political parties than, than any other nation. Uh, we broke records for that. Uh, we saw our, uh, our attitudes towards climate change go from their peak uh, at the start of the last decade, uh, to be at its lowest, um, you know, we saw, you know, this cluster of economic conditions that we had never experienced before: low economic growth, 
you know, government spending, huge debt. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's important to reflect upon yeah. the past decade because the attitudes of how we think today and how we think about the future are really anchored or springboarded from what occurred in the last in the in the last decade. So, as we sort of closed out the uh, the decade, you will recall that you know we had you know the worst uh, environmental bushfires catastrophes we've ever experienced. Yeah. Now, whilst that was going on towards the end of last year, I could see that uh, that COVID was unfolding in the Northern Hemisphere at a very rapid rate. You'll recall that, you know, uh, it went from, you know, Asia over into Europe and impacted mm. Italy, uh, you know, uh, it was probably the first country that was significantly impacted and so you know as I was following what was uh, what was going on there um, it became clear that it was inevitable that it would find out uh, itself into Australia I think what uh, what none of us predicted was its speed scale and impact uh, and so that's where I decided to put the um, the study out there, uh, and the study uh, is really about sort of asking the question of how do we feel about the decade ahead? How do we feel politically? How do we feel environmentally? How do we feel, you know, technologically? Um, and so, uh, so it's it's a fascinating study into seeing how our attitudes. Uh, began at the start of the year over the months of January and February and then how they changed so radically over the months of March and April during the eye of the COVID storm. Do you think they might have changed back a little bit again? I mean, the pendulum is, do you think, because I I presume that maybe that's um, hard for you to answer because of the period in which you were actually doing this research, but I sort of feel that there was quite a lot of that sort of heightened, well, there was massive fear at that time, fear of the unknown. We, none of us like uncertainty, but there was a lot of sort of knee-jerking going on. Um, do you think that that may be the case? Yeah, absolutely, Veronica. I'll give you a great example of this. If we looked at the question of what uh, concerned Australians about Australia and the world over the coming decade, it was absolutely crystal clear that it was uh, climate change. Mm. Uh, now, that's unsurprising uh, because, remember, we came on the back of the bushfires, mm. which had impacted absolutely everyone. It didn't matter where you lived. We were all impacted directly mm. or indirectly uh, by those catastrophes. And so then when we look at the data of for those people who responded during the months of March and April, it was low economic growth. So what manifested (laughs) was, you know, uh, what began as as a health issue so quickly, you know, evolved into becoming an economic issue. Um, And then, you know, when you look at, uh, you know what you when you look at sort of uh, other questions around uh, 
expectations around the workforce and around uh, jobs. You know, for those who responded uh, over the months of January and February, what we saw was that their, you know, principal concerns uh, were, um, you know, were about um, uh, work-life diversity, um, work-life flexibility. Uh, but for those who responded during the months of March and April, it became about jobs. Uh, it became mm. about support programs. It became about reskilling. All of these things sort of manifested themselves. So back to your question about, you know, will we see a, uh, you know, a regression back? Uh, that's going to be very interesting to see because I think the, you know, the, the economic conditions that we find ourselves in that have impacted, you know, uh, so many people in our society are not going to go away overnight. Um, and, you know, there is a lot of attention going on to the environment, particularly at the moment. Um, and so, um, so I, I'm, I'm thinking about rerunning the study again at the end of this uh, at the end of this year. So I'll come back to you on uh, what 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 changes there. Mm. As a, as a futurist, do you get frustrated though by the immediacy of reactions? Because these are business leaders you're interviewing. These aren't just you know the punters on the street doing box pops. These these are people really at the helm of our economy. Um, does that frustrate you? Doesn't frustrate me. It fascinates me mm. uh, because the, the, these are, you know, the leaders of uh, of you know of our economy, of our business, mm. uh, uh, of our private uh, public sector as well. Yeah. I think what was really fascinating, though, was you know there's there's attributes in there which are just quintessentially Australian. Let me give you some examples. <laughs> You know, Australian professionals were just overwhelmingly optimistic about yeah. the role of technology and scientific de developments over the coming decade. Now, this is contrary to popular belief, uh, you know, that um, where more than half believe that technology is going to, uh, you know, create more jobs uh, than what it destroys and often you know, when you hear about artificial intelligence, automation, you know, mm. in the same breath, you're also hearing job loss. Mm. Um, and, you know, looking towards the decade ahead, you know, two in three believe that technological and scientific developments are going to have a positive impact on their life over the coming decade. Now, what's fascinating is that skyrocketed to 87% for those who um, responded during the eye of the COVID storm. So let's just unpack that a little. Uh, we, you know, two in three of us think that uh, technological and scientific advancements, you know, are going to positively impact our lives. But then under, you know, the uh, scientific, the economic duress that we've had with COVID, that belief skyrockets. It intensifies. Mm. Um, now, I think what's important, though, is that that optimism about our future is not matched by confidence that the government is investing adequately in technology, uh, science, mm. skills development relative to other nations with more than half, uh, you know, holding that belief. Now, again, when we so that's half 
for those who responded during the months of January, February, that skyrocketed to 95% for those who responded during the months of March and April. So again, under, you know, under the, or in the eye of the COVID storm, uh, you know, we were virtually unanimous in our uh, belief uh, that uh, government is not investing adequately uh, in technology, science, uh, and, our, and our skills. At a leadership level, this, this, is, this is quite fascinating, about 89% of CEOs are, are, you know, are positive about technology and scientific developments over the coming decade, um, and about the same uh, were um, uh, were less confident uh, that uh, during the eye of the COVID storm, and so you know, I think this is the big opportunity that uh, now awaits us because you know we will go into this will be the decade of death, and that's one of the one of the tipping points, one of the things that I do talk about in the uh, economics chapter. And, you know, we've got to step away from this expectation, I think, of a, you know, uh, of, of a surplus. Um, I don't think that narrative is going to be very helpful. Um, and so whilst we're in now, you know, this decade of investment, it's absolutely critical that we all form points of view around where and how that should be invested. There is no more important decade, I believe, than for all of us to be, to, to be interested in that question. Um, mm. And, you know, and we should be active in that question, not just looking towards leaders, we should all have points of view. Because even when it comes to thinking about, you know, skills, which is going to impact all of us uh, over the, um, you know, over the coming decade, um, you know, reinvesting in, you know, reskilling current workforces onto new and emerging in industries is going to become one of the critical success factors to our economic recovery. We've interviewed a few people on the podcast and it is interesting to this idea of really where we need to go, where it's accepted we need to go by business leaders, um, where the government is lagging behind and particularly in the area of technology and that businesses or industry, and, and you can see it in climate change as well and in terms of um, renewables, that industry or business is actually taking the lead role and just forging ahead and not waiting for the government to actually start up with initiatives and all the rest of it to support these um, these developments. Is that really what you're seeing, that, that industry is just going to say, well, bugger it, we'll just get on with it? Yeah, look, and so we should. And so we mm. should because uh, I asked the question in the uh, research on who do you trust the most uh, to serve your best interests over the coming decade, uh, and government was the was the least. Um, <laughs> academics, academics, and you know subject matter experts uh, were by far number one, uh, mm. and uh, you know second to that uh, were the you know were industries. And, uh, and so, you know, we, again, coming back to what I said before, we all have to be participants, you know, in this next decade, not spectators. 
and mm. uh, and uh, what we what's fascinating here is when you look at why was it that Australia became internationally renowned for our response to COVID, uh, where in fact you know other studies uh, you know rank us as as number one in the world, yet our response to uh, climate change was in fact ranked fourth. Now, <laughs> so, so you sort of sit back and say, well, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is our response during COVID was what I refer to as systems leadership. What is systems leadership? Systems leadership is a collaborative, inclusive approach uh, to responding to conditions economically, uh, you know, socially, uh, and that's what we saw during COVID. We did see governments collaborating with mm. private sector. We did see them, you know, collaborating right across all different industries. We we saw our experts, you know, rise to fill the vacuum of trust that had you know been eroded uh, by governments over the last decade. And so, and then when you say, well, you know, uh, when you look at climate change, you see the absence of that, right? And you see the, you know, the, the last decade, you see the flip-flopping of, uh, of policy, the politicisation of climate change. Now, all of those things were a completely different, that was a sort of top-down, really, wasn't it? It was a, mm. despite what the experts were telling us, yeah, <laughs> like uh, 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 like Professor Garnett in, the, in his report to government of two thousand and seven, like the CSIRO's uh, report to the government of two thousand and nine. These institutions, these experts, right, predicted that uh, without adequate response, uh, we would get the effect as we did in 2019-2020, right. Mm. So why didn't we listen to our experts? I think that's that's the fascinating question. Could that be to do with the fact that it's the immediacy yeah. of COVID versus the immediacy of climate change? I mean, you know, our our efforts for climate change really needed to ramp up a lot earlier than they have been, um, and and a lot more now. But you know what I mean? It's all oh yeah, it may never happen. There's all these arguments that scientists and all the rest of it. Whereas you've got a you've got a pandemic. And we've been very blessed in Australia, and I say blessed in a, I don't know, what, because we've been able to learn from what the rest of the world is, is their tragedies. They've been learning, you know, ahead of us and with so much more tragedy than we've had. And we've been able to sort of be a step behind and therefore adjust and pivot accordingly and actually listen to our experts. Do you think that that's got something to do with it? Oh, without any doubt. Uh, and... Uh, and and that's perhaps uh, you know I, I would say forced on government rather than you know perhaps by design because they <laughs> had no other choice right uh, you mm. had industries that were shutting in around them the airline industry turned off overnight you had you know so so yes you had the consequences of the economic impact um, you know play out um, you know with speed scale and impact. Mm. Recall the month of, uh, of March. You know, here's a funny story. Uh, so when I was writing the book, I started writing the economics chapter um, in, the, uh, in the first week of March. 
and I had my ideas on where I was going to go with uh, with the chapter, uh, and uh, and then all of a sudden, the first stimulus, uh, you know, drop occurred. <laughs> tear that up and throw throw that out the window. <laughs> And start all over again with a, you know, okay, so how is 17 billion <laughs> going to impact the weight? And then in the second week, we then had the state governments come in. And mm. the third week, all of a sudden, we're up to 300 billion in stimulus. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm just going to have to drop economics for about a month or so and come back to it. <laughs> yeah. All of these things were just, you know, happening. Um, happening so dynamically to your point, but I would say they weren't happening um, uh, without adequate consultation and engagement by government, our experts, whether they were economists, whether they were scientists, whether they were, you know, business leaders and the private sector. We saw industries, right, um, coming together um, to shape, uh, decisions that were taken by the government. That's what we mean about systems leadership. So if you look at that and you sort of say, well, why isn't that business as usual? <laughs> good question, isn't it? Mm, very good question. So over the next, say, decade, let's say um, COVID's kind of proved that we don't know what we don't know, we don't know what's going to come around the corner, but what are some of the things Australians should be pretty confident and optimistic about that we're going to achieve over this next decade and that, in your view, are pretty certain that that's going to happen? Yeah, so so I, so I let me begin by saying uh, <laughs> where I differ perhaps to, to others is that I'm more fascinated by what I refer to as the tipping points or the signposts than necessarily the year that events may occur. Um, so I'm not interested in mm-hmm. whether it's going to happen in 2025 or 20. That you know, there are others who are more interested in that. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in yeah. what are the signposts, mm. what are the things that we need to look out for, because those are the things that will help us prepare uh, and you know and think about you know what's going to what's what's going to come at us. So you know, when we think about yeah. the technological world. Um, you know, we've got to think about that in the context of the fourth industrial revolution. What is the fourth industrial revolution? Well, the fourth industrial revolution is characterized by a cluster of technologies that when they come together, have this multiplicative effect. Uh, So let me give you some examples. Um, We're all hearing and seeing on television the deployment of fifth-generation mobiles or 5G mobile mm-hmm. networks by, uh, by major carriers. But then when you think about, you know, well, on top of that network, which is going to be, you know, more than just faster mobile, uh, our cities are going to become much smarter. They're going to be connected through a whole range of sensors. Buildings, for, for example will be able to monitor temperature in a fundamentally different way now that will enable them to manage energy much more efficiently than ever before. When we also start thinking about technologies like, uh, you know, like 
augmented reality or virtual reality, the way with which we buy and sell things will profoundly change our experiences. For example, you could go into mm. a shop, put on a 3D headset, uh, and you could envisage what uh, you know what item you you want to buy, what it might look like on you uh, from a three D perspective, if that's what uh, what you're into. In a property sense, you know you could walk into a you know you could, you could walk into a bank, into a real estate agent, into you know uh, into a financial planning. Uh, uh, office and you know you could experience what that home may look like feel like uh you know through augmented and virtual reality you could even select your own furniture put your own furniture in there to see whether you know your furniture will will go with that all of the mm. kinds of things so you know um uh, our, our virtual reality will become indistinguishable from reality uh, and these are all going to be enabled through, you know, a whole range of technologies that we're going to see come to life this coming decade. I'll give you another example. 3D printing, the ability to, you know, print on demand, you know, is already here. We see that in the publishing world in, in relation to books and things like that. But, you know, uh, with 3D printers, uh, manufacturing will profoundly change across all kinds of different industries and across all kinds of things that, uh, that, uh, that we, you know, that we, that we buy today. Uh, so, so all of those things are, you know, uh, are going to change um, our way of life, whether that is, you know, socially, professionally, um and and this and so this is going to be a very very exciting decade do you think the tipping point was covid for the enablement of you know remote work or you know work from anywhere sort of movement do you think that it needed something like covid to take us you know down that sort of next journey and do you think that that'll change dramatically long term oh look you know um uh, i i think that that's a you know, a wonderful question because when you think about um, when you think about the question of why was it that some organisations pre-COVID had you know very effective, flexible working policies uh, and and others didn't? Uh, what you know, what, what was the difference? Well, there was no technological difference. Um, it was just basically, you know, leadership policies and, and principles. And then what happened was when COVID was just thrust on, um, on all industries, uh, it was fascinating to see how some organisations adapted and pivoted so incredibly mm. well and others didn't. Um, and you say, well, well, why is that the case? If they're two, you know, similar organisations in a similar industry, why was it that one adapted and one didn't? Uh, well, the answer is in the word resilience. Um, and, uh, you know, the organisations that had adapted effectively uh, had adequate resilience factored into their, you know, organisational policies, whether they were you know, uh, around uh, flexible working, work-life balance, all of these kinds of things, and other organisations didn't. Um, and, and, and those that didn't 
uh, tended to have pursued strategies based around productivity and efficiency, you know, over, mm. uh, over the last decade. So they've attenuated out, uh, you know, uh, uh, resilience or the this ability to adapt uh, in the you know in the aim of pursuing productivity and efficiency. And so I think that's what's going to be different. I think you know I think organisations have now realized that you know that that their success uh, is no longer a function of access to privileged resources or to you know intellectual property uh, and it's a principle that I've been sort of writing and reporting about for uh, probably about four or five years now um, and uh, and and it's the principle I I refer to as as juvenescence. Now, juvenescence is a, is a beautiful Latin word defined as the constant state of youthfulness. And <laughs> juvenescence, uh, I, I describe, is a leadership principle. This is something that we can all embrace as people uh, because when you look at the question of, again, organisational survival, and if you go back and look at uh, the um, um, S&P um, 500 in the 1920s, the average life of a a Fortune 500 company back then was about 65 years. Now, uh, about five years ago, that had declined to 15 years. Uh, And what I would say is over the coming decade, that that's going to come into single-digit figures. And and so, you know, survival now, organisational survival is no longer, you know, a function of, you know, of, of having privilege access to resources. It's now about the ability to adapt. And that's what we can learn from, from COVID. Uh, and so, uh, so, so I think that's what's going to define successful organisations, successful leaders, is that they, they, they can lead through a world characterised by exponential change rather than seeing the future as, you know, some linear, uh, you know, points in time that, you know, everything's organised orderly and it's going to land in 2027 or 2028. That's not the world anymore. That is not the world anymore. The death of the five-year plan. But this is really just the theory of evolution just on steroids, isn't it? I mean, this is survival of the fittest at its heart. Absolutely, Veronica, you're spot on. This is not something new, right? This is Darwinian's theory of survival, mm. right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, in the past, when you look at how organisations have typically sold, you know, digital, uh, digital transformations to shareholders, you know, they've typically sort of had an annual general meeting where <laughs> then sort of, you know, talk about, uh, you know, the next three years or the next five years and we're asking shareholders to forego squillions in dividends because we're going to reinvest that into <laughs> transforming this company and in 2023 or 2025 we're going to unveil this shiny new organisation uh, that's digitally transformed and is going to live take us through to the future. <laughs> yeah, into in perpetuity, right? That's basically yes. how it's sold. But what we now know is that one-off transformations, right, do not explain organisational survival. 
And so if they mm. don't, uh, then what, what, what is it? Well, it's a series of uh, short adjustments and, and you know, uh, adapting to, to what's coming at them in the environment or, you know, economically, what, what have you. Uh, and, and so that, I think, Veronica, is what we're going to see a lot more of. I think organisations who understand that, um, you know, uh, I think we're going to see rise from COVID and we'll operate in completely new and different ways. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Can big organisations do it though? I mean, because, you know, it's like trying to, I don't know, turn, I like the saying, turn turn the queen wary around, right? You know, you're trying to turn around an ocean liner, it takes a lot of time, a lot of space, a lot of ocean. Um, and and I, I'm not using the word agile in terms of the management uh, methodology, or the methodology, but I'm using the word agile in the true meaning, the actual meaning of the word, the agility to be able to spring and bounce and adjust and do small increments, you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, are our big organisations equipped for the future? Well, uh, so um, I think so. I think we, we will not defy physics. <laughs> and, uh, but what we, what we will see, uh, which we did actually start seeing during COVID, and that is if you think about the way with which, you know, those poor people that were caught on those cruise liners, uh, you know, mm. weeks on end, <laughs> either in port or, you know, off offshore. Um, and uh, uh, and I don't know if you saw on TV, some of them were ordering in pizzas that were being delivered on drones. <laughs> How cool is that? <laughs> so my point here is that, you know, we're not going to turn the cruise liner uh, or make it. It's not necessarily about making the cruise liner, <laughs> you know, turn around. But it's the way with which we think about the processes upon which, you know, we go about surviving on a, on a ship. We've got to eat. Mm. Um, and the use, clever use of technology such as that with drones is, you know, uh, is, is just a simple example of saying that's what we're going to see more of. You know, uh, you know that uh, we, we will see uh, organisations um, you know, become more decentralised in the way they operate versus centralised. So coming back to the question that you said before about, mm. you know, are we going to see a return to, you know, 40,000 people coming back into half a dozen 15-storey buildings, you know, scattered in cities across the country? No. I, do, I, I, I don't believe that. I think mm. what we're going to see is because I think on the enterprise size, organisations have already figured it, figured it out as well. Why should I be paying a million dollars? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, so, you know, the, so COVID has flushed all of these things out, right? It's, it's, it's given us the opportunity to rethink perhaps a lot of the uh, 
uh, you know, traditional um, strategies that we've had in place, because all of those things created, uh, you know, inflexibility. Um, and, um, and so that's what I mean about decentralized. It, it, it will, um, it's not going to be an either or. I think there's going to, there, we will definitely see blends. And we're certainly seeing a response, an immediate response to that, you know, in the property market in terms of where people want to live. But I want to go back to uh, something you mentioned earlier, which really sort of, you know, stuck in my mind. It was that virtual reality will be indistinguishable from actual reality. Does that mean that if I can't afford my harborside mansion, I can actually work virtual, half virtually and, um, you know, I can tree change or sea change and, and, you know, and I can actually still own a, a space, a live in a space that is actually virtual rather than real? Do you, are you foreseeing something like that? Because oh, that's going to be the rule egalitarian. That's going to make property seriously egalitarian, isn't it? Oh, look, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, some great examples of this were the, um, the um, uh, National Maritime Museum uh, in Sydney. Um, I think it was last year. It might have been last year or the year before. I can't quite recall. They had this uh, 3D um, little theatre that you could go in and have an experience around the Antarctic. It was amazing. Mm. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, you know, uh, I took my son to that and we just, you know, had this incredible experience for about an hour. Is that where you're on the boat and you can see penguins? Yeah, yeah. The technology a couple of years ago, uh, you know, uh, I guess is, it has, was not as mature as what it's going to become over this coming decade. And, you know, the key enablers of this are firstly faster networks, such as mm. 5G networks. Yep. Uh, the pixelation within uh, and projection uh, technology. Uh, and, uh, and so all of these things are coming together, I guess, you know, over the coming decade. And so... You know, um, rather than thinking about uh, or being, you know, constrained in travel, for example, you could, you know, spend yes. a couple of hours going down the Amalfi Coast in a Ferrari. That's exactly what I was just thinking about. I was like, that COVID didn't kill the airline industry. It would be that. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And so, you know, when you think about, um, you know, when you think about the use of um, these kinds of technologies with robotics, you know, where you can actually get, you know, the uh, the four D experience, uh, it's pretty amazing. You know, the other things the other things to think about is, you know, um, when you look at healthcare, um, we've been talking about telehealth for about. 25 years, right, ever since the internet came out. Health was one of the first areas that, you know, uh, that, uh, that you know, everybody was thinking that there was, it was going to revolutionise and, you know, that we were going to be able to do all of these, have all of these wonderful treatments and things like that, uh, consultations and things like that done remotely. Well, why has it taken so long? Uh, and why did it take COVID to all of a sudden you know, put it in place. Uh, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? All of a sudden, all of these things, you know, that yeah. you could get consultations for with your treating specialist or GP or whatever, uh, 
you know, virtually that you couldn't have gotten in February, you could get them mm-hmm. in March. <laughs> so, so, so this is all about change, right? Um, and so, again, I think there will be things that I don't think we will see the return of. And telehealth, I hope, is not going to be one of them. Uh, because I think what, you know, uh, this notion of, um, of, you know, just one policy for, for, for everything doesn't work anymore in a world where, you know, we are so well endowed with all of this wonderful technology. Um, and so you think for uh, research that our uh, ability and our desire to own a home or own a space or, or how we engage with the physical environment around us, do you think that that's going to be something that changes because we've gone through this year where everything is, you know, our usual sort of routine has been disrupted so much. So with, you know, things that we didn't have, you know, for example, access to, you know, local amenities or, you know, matter more. So do you think that that's going to shift as well? Like people are going to become more and more focused on their environment around them day to day rather than, uh, just you know, following the rat race, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. The the workplace is becoming uh, and is becoming dematerialized. Uh, so let me just unpack this a little. Um, before I talked about uh, the so we we've come through a period where centralization of you know a lot of things was the pathway to efficiency, productivity, Mm. Uh, (laughs) more people you can pack into a building, you know, the more, you know, or the lower the cost uh, per FTE, all of those kinds of things sort of created this centralist way of thinking. Now, this decade is all going to be about the complete opposite, Mm. all going to be about decentralisation. Now, when you think about decentralisation and if you think about the fact that, you know, our economy is principally now services-based. Mm. So why can't I do what I do uh, in Sydney? Why can't I do that in Wagga Wagga? Uh, why can't I do that in Byron Bay? Because I can tell you now there are a lot of people who took shelter in Byron Bay <laughs> during the isolation periods of COVID, right, uh, and, uh, and just continued their work. And so... So all, And so if you think about that uh, and think about then some of the technologies that I mentioned before, 3D printing, you know, uh, when that's decentralised, you know, when you can, you know, buy a design, uh, you know, digitally from New York, London, wherever, um, and then have that printed locally, uh, you know, mm. wow, that's, that's amazing rather than having to wait, you know, weeks for it to be, uh, you know, dispatched from the UK or from wherever uh, and getting a thousand reminder emails that it's on its way and what happened. <laughs> Blown in a plane. <laughs> so all of, those, you know, that's, all of those things, that's what I mean about the world's going to be decentralised. So we have to think about, you know, um, this urbanisation uh, in, you know, in very different ways. We, we see this and, and like, you know, we've said, you've said about telehealth, for instance, it's one of the, the acceler- things that have been accelerated um, through COVID and a lot of people we've interviewed talked about that, you know, it's brought forward things that would, would have been um, to be expected to come in a decade or so. 
But what is interesting, uh, a lot talking to a lot of um, uh, people in business and psychologists, and there's you know a bit of literature coming out about the other aspect of decentralization and working from home, and that is the psychological impact and the desire for people to be part of a community, part of a team, part of a tribe, part of a whatever you want to call it. And the physical, the benefit of physically being in an office environment, hearing, you know, the the water cooler talk, hearing, you know, getting the vibe, picking up things, what's going on. Um, there's a level of frustration that's happening, and uh, you know, a lot of people I know that are working, you know, for major corporations where that now they said, well, if you're not an essential worker, you can't come into the office. So they've been working remotely now, what for nine months? There tend, there seems to be a sort of a, a, a groundswell of people that are saying, well, I don't really want to have this decentralization all the time. You know, has that been factored into this this sort of thinking? Well, these are, the, these are all the things that we're now learning. I think the other thing as well, Veronica, is the impact that, or, you know, those examples that you've had and many more have had on mental health. Um, mm. you know, we, we, we have gone through probably five years of behavioral change, you know, in five weeks. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, for some uh, yeah. they, they've struggled with that for a whole variety of, uh, of reasons. Uh, and so I don't think we've, we've seen the full effect of, uh, of the impact um, of all of those. Um, and, so, um, and so there's never been, I think, a more important time uh, for us to be, you know, watching those things really closely um uh you know and it, and it invites the question i think now of what is the future of work um and you know and and the and, and it's not a one size fits all in other words you know the centralist approach everybody 40,000 people have to come into six <laughs> buildings you know on mm. cities scattered around the country uh that is what i think we will not see the return of. Um, and I think it's now um, really important, I think, for a lot of organisations, a lot of people to share their experiences. And, and again, as I, as I mentioned right at the very start, you know, be a participant, not a spectator, to what's going to happen this decade. Your voice matters. And, um, and it's only through that that I think we're going to see some really highly creative, imaginative ways uh, on you know what the future of work will be. What's your view on the sort of by going down the sort of remote work from anywhere? Uh, that also then expands the talent pool for organisations to hire people anywhere, right? So we don't need people in Sydney; we could have them in anywhere in Australia. Or now we've got access to the global workforce. You know, do you think that then you've got maybe the uh, anti sort of globalisation, you know, nationalism, all these sort of world. Um, fightbacks, I guess. I mean, what's? How do you think that that the two extremes are going to play out? You know, do you think companies are basically going to start to hire people globally, and that's ultimately when you're Australia, twenty five million people versus seven billion. Do you think that Australia needs to be very conscious of how we manage that sort of uh, global workforce challenge? Yeah, look, that's a great question, Chris. Uh, the uh, skills um, and reskilling. Uh, is our single biggest issue right now. Um, and, you know, gosh, there, there, there's been so many people impacted uh, around the world by COVID 
Uh, and so what's, what, you know, what's, what, what, what's important for us right now is to be looking ahead. What are the new and emerging industries? Uh, what are the skill sets that we require in those industries? And then how do we work between government, uh, the private sector, to, to reskill people um, in the right supply to the uh, you know to the industries and organisations that are going to need them. So, you know, I've I've got a whole chapter in the um, in the book uh, on that. And the 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 point here is, if we our information intensity is only going to increase yeah. in the course of time. So, uh, you know, our consumption and use of data is just going to continue its exponential rise. And so the way we need to think about learning is no longer, you know, the three-stage model, you know, primary, secondary, and tertiary. Uh, it needs to be based on lifelong. And so that's, that's not the responsibility of, you know, government or the responsibility of, you know, industry. It's the responsibility of individuals, right? Mm. I mean, we're responsible for, for taking, you know, ownership of that. What we can look forward to is that the way with which we learn uh, will become, you know, much more, um, uh, you know, immersive by the use of technologies that we were talking about before, such as, you know, um, virtual reality. We will be able to experience things uh, in the pursuit of learning in, you know, highly experiential ways. Um, and so rather than a linear view of learning through text, uh, for example, you know, we'll be able to experience um, uh, things in, in very different ways. And so, you know, the, already we have gaps in um, our skills supply. For example, the Australian Information Communications uh, Computer Association predicts that by 2023 we'll have a technologist shortfall in the order of 100,000. Already we have, you know, uh, a skills shortage in cyber and information security. Um, where are our data scientists coming from? <laughs> um, uh, so all of these, you know, that's what I mean. We've got to look to what are the what are the new industries. Uh, how do we reskill, you know, uh, roles and job types which will be retired due to automation, uh, you know, and technology advancements? And how do we, you know, uh, redeploy those skills uh, into into where we need them? That's really the challenge, right? And we've got to again use systems leadership to to answer answer those questions. It's quite fascinating because. Of course, you know, I'm all for it is the role of the individual to take responsibility for their own lives. And you said earlier that uh, the mark of, of having a future as in a business with a future is its resilience. And this will mean that I guess there'll be, um, what's the word, It almost like a new class of people will be those that are much more adaptive, those that are able to put their hand up and actually take responsibility and drive their own learning um, versus those that are sort of 
you know, want to play the blame game and look to governments to support them and all the rest of it, you know, so we've got to have a whole new society. So it's going to be very scary for a lot of people, I would imagine. Yeah. And look, uh, what I would say is that the comforting uh, aspect of, of that is that uh, that demographic is already here. They're referred to as millennials. And those are, you know, people broadly aged between about 19 and 39 years. You know, millennials are now the largest demographic group on the planet. Uh, They grew up in a world that has witnessed more change than generations before them. And they're the first digital generation. Uh, You know, back on what we were talking about before about, you know, adaptability, well, gosh, you know, uh, millennials are the most adaptable uh, demographic we have. And, you know, and we're about to now usher in the generation post-millennials, which are, you know, the Gen Zs or what I call the TikTokers. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and uh, you know, and they've, you know, they've grown up on YouTube, right? They're, they're, and so that demographic is going to absolutely leapfrog, you know, a lot of the traditional ways of learning and go straight on to, you know, this virtual reality, mm. right? Because that's that's how they've, you know, learned to, um, you know, to see the world. Um, and so, you know, one of the questions I did ask in the study was, you know, how do we feel about, um, you know, the about millennials, um, you know, uh, over the coming decade rising to become leaders of, you know, uh, businesses, of <laughs> politics, of institutions, religious, you know, uh, or not. Uh, and more than one in two people, um, you know, agree that they're going to be, um, you know, much better leaders uh, than those of former generations. And so I think, you know, we're looking to our youth to be, you know, integral into how we create, you know, the decade ahead. Funnily enough, there was about 8% of millennials who disagreed with that statement. That I- <laughs> <laughs> they see themselves as me. So that's uh, that's that's quite funny. So we can kind of put out the passing of the baton, um, you know, with things like climate change. Look, we, we're not going to try to solve this problem. Um, you know, the next we'll leave that for the millennials and the greater um, people of the world to to solve these problems. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Millennials are absolutely going to fix the inequality that we have in our societies, but whether it's, you know, whether it's gender, whether it's uh, yeah. sexual, whether it's cultural, uh, they will fix that. Uh, they'll fix a, a range of other issues that generations before them were either unwilling or were unable uh, to fix. Uh, climate change is one of them. So, you know, uh, I think we, we will see a whole range of of new um, advances socially, culturally, economically uh, by a demographic who has completely different views to generations before them. Well, that's a message of hope. It is. It is. And they're now having children. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, you know, uh, and, you know and, and, you know, I think when you, there's a beautiful word called youthquake 
which was the uh, 2017 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year. And youthquake is defined as a significant social, cultural and economic change uh, resulting uh, from, from youth. Now, what's fascinating about that is that youthquake was first termed by the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine in the mid-60s. And if you think about the mid-60s, gosh, there was so, you know, it was a profound social and cultural uh, political change that uh, was going on all around the world. Um, and for it to, you know, resurface again five decades later, um, I think is testament to how, you know, we, we, the world is right now. It is looking for change. You know, there were some studies done by uh, Ipsos um, that looked at questions like, you know, you know do you want to, you know, um, see, um, you know, leadership return to what it was before COVID? 86% of people around the world said no. Uh, you, know, yeah. you want to return yeah. to your life before COVID, you know, most people mm. said no. Uh, and so, um, you know, so again, I think as they assume greater, you know, proportionate representation politically, economically, uh, socially, uh, you know, we'll see their ideas um, um, come to life. And so we should look with great optimism uh, for um for, for what they will contribute to, you know, the coming decade and, and the decade thereafter. I think it's going to be quite irony because I think, you know, I don't know if your view is on, uh, you know, ageing population and how long we're going to live um, and, you know, in medical advancements allowing us to potentially live longer and uh, healthier lives. <laughs> so the millennials are going to come in and start to solve the issues that uh, and then people are going to be living longer and so they're going to get all the rewards, I guess, from uh, the change having to sit on the sidelines and watch, I guess. Well, well, this is a real problem because you're spot on, uh, uh, Chris. We, 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 we have, uh, we've got the ageing population and the impact of the ageing population will unfold and impact us more so this decade than, you know, uh, than, than in the last decade. And if you look at what's referred to as the proportion of working age people uh, defined by the OECD as those uh, between 25 and 64 years versus those of retirement, which is post-65 years, um, Australia has uh, one, of the, um, one of the lowest ratios. So what does that mean? It just means that the number of people we have working to support an ageing population uh, is going to create uh, quite uh, a challenge in our social systems. Uh, mm. And so, so we have to look for technology uh, to be able to be more productive, uh, to create new growth in industries that, you know, that aren't there today. Because if we think about doing what we what we do today over the coming decade, we're going to run into some problems, um, and uh, so it's become more important when we think about aging population uh, and how we support them through uh, our social systems and the like. 
to 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 also think about the role that technology and the new demographics will, will play in that. Mm-hmm. So have you got a uh, property Dumbo for us? Yeah. Look, I think. Look, I, I would say that the um, the principles of ownership um, are quickly disappearing around many aspects of our lives, um, and I've often wondered. Uh, why perhaps that's taken so long to really take traction in the property world. I'll give you some examples mm. of this. This notion of, you know, owning cars, <laughs> this notion of, um, you know, uh, of uh, owning CDs. Remember those? Remember CDs? Yeah. <laughs> so this, uh, this notion of ownership yeah. is... Uh, perhaps crumbling around many aspects of our lives, um, and you know, and and so uh, I've again I've often wondered why it's taken so long uh, for that to really take hold in our mindset around property. I, I agree. I think I, one of my questions I was going to ask you around that: whether you think that the that's going to shift back the other way because uh, it was that trend. I'm happy to rent anywhere. I'm going to move around. I'm going to be flexible. That's what millennials know. The rent vesting sort of was a strategy. Rent where you want to live, you know, buy other investments. Um, but I'm just wondering whether you think that that potentially is shifting going back the other way, but where people have felt, well, what I want now is security and stability and my own roof and not to live in, um, you know, not that uncertainty of the future. I think that's, you know, with cocooning. Wish they wouldn't have had that. Um, would have, you know, wish they were not an apartment, wish they owned that house, etc. Yeah. Well, we've got to remember that millennials are the first demographic we've stuffed with student debt <laughs> before they start working, right? So, uh, so, so, so this is the de- demographic that I think we're, we're going to see all of these things playing out with mm. because, you know, um, uh, they are beginning their, you know, professional life. Uh, you know, with a completely different set of challenges to perhaps what, what what other generations have had, and so through that, I think you know uh, uh, we will see entrepreneurship, innovation, you know, manifest itself. Um, but we're also seeing, you know, again, what we we're talking about before: decentralisation, decentralisation. Uh, you know, will will change the way people think about sea changes. Um, you know, do I really need to le- live in a city? Um, you know, uh, when so I think you know that when when services will become infrastructure such as transport um, and uh, and technology will allow us to live anywhere. Uh, I think that does force mm. think about well, you know, do I really need to live you know on uh, on a beach in sydney we're not going to live on a beach in new south wales or you yeah. have the same lifestyle perhaps uh without all of the urbanization around you or i can put on the goggles and experience it that way <laughs> that's right that's right that's right in the company of friends right, <laughs> exactly right. we can have a virtual house party 
And we can all have a holiday in our own in our own different locations. <laughs> and stay together as a family. That's right. I want to go to India this year, but my partner wants to go to Italy. Or <laughs> that's right. That's and you right. can do it without leaving your, your own living room. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rocky. I really appreciate your time and your insights. There's um, lots for our listeners to take away. Hey, it's a pleasure, uh, Veronica and Chris. Thanks. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, we've just had a whole interview about the view of the future. And I guess when it comes to buying property, that is something that we do talk about and and owning property. We do talk about it. It's a long-term play, right? So therefore, when we're looking at our own decisions in the context of all this change and, and sentiment and, you know, what the future is going to look like, the future work, decentralization, et cetera, et cetera, it could be quite e- easy for people to get really bogged down in the sort of nitty-gritty of it and also being quite reactionary. But fundamentally, we're all living a life. You've got one life and, and there are things that we choose um, in our lives and obviously property is a very important part of that. And so how that all fits into the total picture is really important that we have a big picture. We have a, a, a not so much a plan where you write down everything you want for the next 60 years or whatever, but, but a, a goal, um, direction, Shared goals, if you're in a partnership, you know, with kids and all the rest of it, sort of where do you want your life to go? And be thinking with that long lens all the time. Now, obviously, we need to be responsive, and I and I draw a, a distinction between responsive and reactive. And I think that's the interesting thing we talked about with Rocky there as well, in that that reaction to macro environmental stuff. And of course, we are going to have reactions, but it's also our choice of how we respond. You know, we also said that the future really um is in individuals taking responsibility for their own lives and their own, you know, their own learning, et cetera, et cetera. So I think not being fearful, but being purposeful and having a plan and understanding where it is we want to go, the direction we want to go in our life. And I think that that's a really important thing to for us all to focus on. And obviously, Chris, I'm going to turn to you now because as a, as a, I know you're not a practicing financial planner anymore, but that's obviously something that you've had to deal with and work with your clients for, for years, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's we get two type of clients, ones that are always taking action and they're very focused on their longer term and they're just always thinking, what can I do today that's going to get me further advanced? Um, and they're obviously doers and, you know, and their finances usually re- reflect that. Um, and because it's many, been many years of doing small incremental um, and not being afraid to make decisions and not getting analysis paralysis. But then we get... Um, you know, the other type of clients, potentially even super successful from a, you know, their career or their, uh, and they've been spending a lot of time investing on that part of their world. But when they come to other decisions around their finances or making big life decisions, whether it's where they live or buying a house, they get overwhelmed, get analysis paralysis, and they get sucked in. So they go and seek out information and they get hit by the media and, um, and they can't get that sort of clarity. Um, and focusing on the longer term and what are they ultimately trying to achieve. And prime example was a client last night. You know, they 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 can't make that next decision because it's they're not certain, they're not confident of what it's going to be the right decision. And you're never really going to know, but you need to take action. So, but um, you know, I guess the big learning I think here is is to to not be so much focused about what's happening today and what's going to happen over the next year or two. Focus on the longer term and make decisions based on that. Now, keep up to date with what's happening potentially could change and how that's going to impact things like COVID, how's that going to impact your investments? But, you know, don't be, I guess, so fearful about 
the next couple of years because that's what the media and the world's kind of playing into and you kind of got to switch off from it all. And I think too, interestingly enough, just the whole sort of beginning of COVID and obviously we talked about that in this episode with Rocky as well, that certainly when it all started happening and lockdowns and you know, back in March and early April and, you know, I really felt quite clearly that, well, you know what, life does go on and and I guess, you know, my advanced years, you know, I've had the GFC, I've had 9-11, I've had, you know, various other sort of traumatic and dramatic events that have unfolded in the world. And and when I was younger, you do, you think, oh, my God, we'll never recover from this. But when you're older, you've got lived experience and you know that actually my individual life goes on. And and I think that that's one of the things, I was having a discussion with my 14-year-old daughter this morning about ageism, funnily enough. And, you know, that is one of the benefits that a lived experience and older people can bring to the table for millennials and for Gen Z um, so that they don't necessarily have to react and, and in fear to change, that they can realise that if they know what they want in their lives in terms of where they want to go and what their personal values are and all the rest of it, that they've got their own true north effectively. And when these things happen to buffet us around, they still know fundamentally who they are at their core and what they want. And and I think that that's really that guiding, the guiding light that each of us need in our own um, hearts, if you like, or our own minds, minds and hearts, that will help us work through choosing what the right decision is and the right thing to do and actually taking action uh, in times of uncertainty. your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or north shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team would love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealth.com.au. If you're a first-time buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.